Good morning. This morning we're reading from Genesis chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're studying the doctrines of peace, right? The doctrines of peace, biblical wisdom for our personal conflicts and for living through such a divisive, polarized age in our society. The impact of idolatry is what I'm calling today's message. And I don't know if you asked yourself the question, what does idolatry have to do with conflict? It actually has everything to do with conflict. The Protestant reformer John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. That according to our own nature, human beings pump out idols as a living. I mean, we are so good at doing that. Now, if you're asking the question, what is an idol, that's a very good question to ask. I don't want you to think of a stone statue or some, um, you know, some forged metal figure that looks like a giant hippopotamus or a squirrel or something like that. I'm talking about idols of the human heart. Idols that we craft in our minds. What is an idol of the heart? I'll get to that. For now, though, I want, you to sh- I, want it- I want you to see the impact of idolatry in our conflicts. We've learned in the last two weeks that uh, our first response as Christians is to glorify God. Once we realize we're in a conflict, we realize we're in an, in an intense or divisive situation, we remember that as his creatures and his children, we exist to glorify God and to glorify him even in our conflicts. And that the first step is, as Ken Sandy says in his book, the first step in a conflict is to try and remove the log in my eye, to address my own culpability, my own fault, even if it's small. Now that type of honest assessment is going to uncover in you things that are hidden, but that are controlling you. Maybe something you're afraid to lose or somebody that you want to protect. Maybe it's something that you are absolutely desperate to have. Those are actually the idols of a person's heart. And the only thing that is powerful enough to defeat these false gods, that's that's really what an idol is, a false god. The only thing powerful enough to defeat them is the true God's love for you. And I want to talk about what that means God's love for you 
will deliver you from the idols that rule over you. That's the idea for today. The love of God will deliver us from the idols that rule over us. I want to talk about the idols that ruled over that couple 4,000 years ago, Abram and Sarai. I'll apologize in advance for calling them Abraham and Sarah. Those were their new names, but not quite yet in in their history. So if you hear me say Sarah and Abraham, I mean Abram and Sarai. Okay, now we're on the same page, hopefully. We're going we're gonna to look at what ruled over Sarai and Abram in the crazy situation Cynthia just read about in Genesis chapter 16. We're going to talk about what rules over you. And to resolve all of that, we're going to talk about what ruled over Jesus of Nazareth when he lived here for th- over 30 years. So what ruled over Sarai and Abram, what rules over you and me, and what ruled over Jesus when he came and lived among us. As you read the first six verses of Genesis chapter 16, it's a much fuller account. I encourage you, read the rest of the chapter today, because things do pan out. They get better and they get worse after verse 6. But what ruled over Sarai and her husband Abram was this their anxiety about being childless. That was a dynamic in their life that had become so powerful to them that it was ruling them. They desperately wanted, honestly, a very good thing, right? They wanted a family. They wanted a son. They wanted an heir. They wanted to have the purpose of nurturing a child. And they wanted the honor that comes along with having children, especially in that society. Culturally, back then, being childless was embarrassing. You know, today, if people don't want to have children, they find ways to not have children, and they get a dog. But 4,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, if you didn't have a child, it was an embarrassing thing. Plus, Sarai, now she is very old. Her biological clock, it's not even ticking anymore. Her biological clock has stopped. And it's actually, if you do the math and you read from Genesis chapter 12 up to this point, it has been 10 years since God promised them a son. Great nation, as Chris said to the kids, a great nation is going to come out of you. and You're going to have your own child. You're going to have an heir. It's been a decade since that promise. Still nothing. No one's come along. Now, Why criticize an aging couple who just wanted a good thing, right? Well, watch. Watch this. Verse 2. Sarai said to Abram, her husband, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. You notice she's not quite blaming here, right? It's not outright blaming God, but she does observe that God is in her way of happiness, isn't he? And Abram wants a son, Read Genesis 15. He's asking God, when is this going to happen? He desperately wants an heir as well. And so when Sarai says to Abram, use my servant, in verse 2 we are told, Abram listened to the voice of his wife. But it's not that Abram listened to his wife's wise counsel. It's that Abram becomes complicit in what his wife is trying to do. This is complicity for Abram, not leadership. 
For me and, and, and Becky, if, if one of us is, is not thinking clearly, the other comes along to offer wise advice. Usually she's the one offering me wise advice. That's typically how it works in our home. That's not what's happening here. Instead of leading well by counterbalancing Sarah's lust for a child, he concedes and is complicit in what she wants to do. Despite God's promise, they forced a child into their home. And I, I'm going to say Burger King style, have it your way. They decide to have a child their own way. God had promised them, and their, 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 their task was to wait in faith. But they decide to have it their own way, and they force the issue of having a child. And look, I'm not judging them. Believe me. This, this childless status had been an issue for them, and it is for some of us. It is for some of you. Or maybe it's something else. You or I may have a different issue, something, a loss, um, an impediment, a malficiency, uh, an inconsistency, something in your life, something in my life that becomes a chronic source of anxiety or a chronic source of shame or a constant frustration causing self-loathing. You hate yourself. You're, you're frustrated with the person you are. You are dissatisfied with who you are and what you have and how people see you. We have to not judge them, but relate to them. But I want you to watch. I want you to watch the trauma and the conflict that unfold because Sarai and Abram decide to have it their own way after 10 years of remaining barren. They basically victimize an employee. Young Hagar from Egypt, probably nobody around who could have protected her and taken care of her. She's from Egypt. She's a young girl, which means she's a servant. She's a slave. She's on her own. And according to the Old Testament law that would come later, Abram is the only person in that household who has the power and authority to protect that employee. And he doesn't. They victimize an employee, and uh, she gets caught in their anxious web. They draw her in to their decade-long, their lifelong anxious web. They force her to marry. She gets pregnant, and then Sarah gets jealous, right? Now, Hagar wasn't perfect in the situation. She got cocky when she saw that she could get pregnant, and her boss could not. Nonetheless, she had no power in the dynamic. She was helpless, and they used her and they abused her. Look at verse 6. Abram said to Sarai, because right, what happened? Sarai is embarrassed, and she goes to her husband and said, you made a mess of this whole situation. It was her idea, but she's blaming him for it. And how does he respond to her? Does he protect Hagar? Does he speak wisdom to his wife? No. It says, this is what Abram said to his wife, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then we're told Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar, and Hagar fled from her. Now, what's so interesting here is that the couple, both of them each in a different way, react to their anxiety. They both handle their anxiety and conflict in totally different ways. Sarai is humiliated, and so what does she do in her humili humiliation? She attacks. She becomes the abuser. Abram... Now, we're not told what Abram's motivation is here. Sarah's humiliated, and so she attacks. She goes on the attack, and she becomes abusive. Abram, we're not told what he's thinking. 
We're not led in to what's going on in his heart, but we see how he responds. He gives in. He capitulates. She's on the attack. He's on the retreat. A merciful God, if you keep reading in Genesis 16 and beyond, God is full of mercy. No matter what we do, he's full of mercy. And he would take care of Hagar and her child to come. And God would even allow Sarai to conceive her own son. Naturally, amazing. But the two nations born from those two women would be in conflict for thousands of years. Because a childless couple let their childlessness rule over them. That's the dynamic. The situation they were in was really in control of them. And it greatly impacted how they handled the conflict. Now, back to the question, what is an idol of the heart? Well, what rules over you because you have granted it power to rule over you, that's an idol. An idol was whatever rules over you because you have given it authority in your life, because you have given it prominence in your mind. As Tim Keller puts it, this is what an idol is when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. And that's why the idols of my heart can be so deceptive, so elusive, I don't even know their idols because they look like good things, you see. I just want a child. I just want to go into ministry. I just want to plant a church. I just want to volunteer in children's Sunday school. It looks really good. But the motivations are crooked, you see. Good things that you want in wrong ways, that's an idol. Good things that God designed for you that you want at the wrong time or in an inappropriate way, that's an idol. Sarai so desired motherhood, Abram so desired to please his wife that they both victimized a young, helpless woman. God, in his unsearchable wisdom, as Abram and Sarai discovered, God does not always, often, almost always, never fulfills his promises as you expect, right? You read his word, you believe that it is true, but the way that plays out in history and in our lives looks totally different than what we expect. And so reality, when reality corrects your expectations, when reality throws a bucket of cold water on your hopes and your dreams, you get angry. We fight dirty. Or like Sarai, we accuse and we blame. Or like Abram, we ignore, we neglect, we desert one another, we give up on each other, we give up on the cause, we give up on that promise, we give up on that person. Why do we do this? James in the New Testament said it is because of the idols of our hearts. He said, what causes quarrels and fights among you, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, and you desire and do not have, so you murder? You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You see what James reveals to us, exactly what we see in Sarai and Abram, that beneath our conflicts are unmet desires that rule 
our hearts. And those unmet desires that rule our hearts actually drive your behavior and your positions in conflict, Ken Sandy says. Under every word, under every decision and action in a conflict is something motivating it. What's motivating our conflicts? If you're struggling with a conflict and you're thinking of one right now and you need God's help, here's something practical you can do. Ask God in prayer to uncover the idols of your own heart so that you can confess them. Ask God to help you uncover your heart's idols so that you can confess them to him, to yourself, and to anyone else who is involved. Right? That means don't post it and don't make a public announcement. You confess to God, to yourself, and to anyone who has business knowing because they are involved in the conflict. Because this is what confession does. And what I mean by confession is admitting to your fault and culpability, owning your own sin in the situation. The reason confession is powerful is because it names the hidden idol that's controlling everything. It's less powerful once it has a name and you see it for what it is and you ask God to help. The reason we're addressing idolatry today the week after we addressed getting the log out of your own eye is because through the process of self-awareness, self-assessment that allows you to remove the logs from your eye, what you discover is that often those logs are outward manifestations of inward hidden idols. The idols drive the beams in our eyes. Sarai's logs were kind of obvious in the story, blame and abuse. Those were the logs in her eyes. She was abusive and she was blame shifting. But the idol controlling all of it beneath in her soul was an unmet longing, a very good thing that she demanded to have and was not willing to wait any longer for. What are the idols of your heart? you're a serious follower of Jesus, you've got to ask that question on a regular basis. What are your heart's idols? It's the Christian calling to uncover them. When what is withheld from us rules over us, we become the worst versions of ourselves. When the things we desperately want are actually in charge we become the worst versions of ourselves. We sacrifice what is most important in our lives and we hurt the people in our lives in order to have that thing. And here's the, here's the subtly insidious, insi- what's the word, insidious? Is that a word? Insidious, thank you, thank you, insidious. The insidious thing about idolatry is it makes you irrational It makes you nonsensical and you begin to believe that that thing that you want was always yours. That you've always had a right to it, that you've always had a claim to it. I think the best illustration of that that I could think of at least this week, you won't be surprised, is J.R.R. Tolkien's creature, Gollum. This is a great illustration of the impact of idols in our lives, idols of the heart. I want you to think about Gollum. He was so 
captivated in lust by the one ring. From the moment he saw it, and what did he do? He murdered, I got a hand up, that's okay, I know you know. I know you know. He murdered his own friend. He murdered his own friend to get the ring. And, and it happened to be, what was that day? Go ahead. Yes, yes, but it was a special day in Smeagol's life. It was his birthday. On his birthday, he's murdered his friend to get the ring. And so what's so interesting, do you remember now what he called the ring? The precious, but there was another name. What else did he call the ring? Yes, his precious, but there was something else. You get like extra points for doing the accent, Everett. What else? My birthday present. You got it. For the rest of his life, what does he do? He calls the ring his birthday present. You see what he had done? He had redefined the ring. He, had, he rewrote his story. And his story became, this is mine. It has always been mine. I have a right to it because it's my birthday present. That's what idolatry in my heart does. I rewrite my story. The idol is actually in control. See, I redefine myself, but the idol is redefining me. Gollum redefines the ring, and he calls it my birthday present because the ring in its malice had already redefined him. You see, who is actually in control? And that's what idols do in my soul. At the root of our conflicts are things that we are actually worshiping. We think we're, we think we're in, cons- in control, but we are enslaved to our idols. The things that rule you will define you. And maybe that thing is a very good thing that God created, or maybe it's a hurt in your life that is so deep, that is so shameful, that you live under its oppression. But the things that rule you will define you. And the only liberation from that, from idols that define you, even if you don't know that they exist or you don't realize the power they have over you, the only liberation from this is a God whose own love redefines you. Sin defines us as God's enemies. Grace redefines us as God's forgiven daughters and sons. A new longing, a new love, a new desire has to replace the old one. Did you know that Jesus of Nazareth never longed for the right thing in the wrong way, ever. Actually, when he was fasting in the wilderness for 40 days before he started his ministry, and he was very hungry at the end of it, and Satan, the tempter, the deceiver, the accuser, came to him. You remember the three things that, that Satan offered to Jesus as though he owned them himself. But, but in a sense, if you read Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus Christ, Satan basically offered Jesus three things. He said to him, in summary, feed yourself, save yourself, and glorify yourself. You need food. I know you can do cool tricks. And I'll give you the whole world and all its kingdoms. 
right? These are all good things that Jesus could have done and he had a right to claim as God. But the timing was wrong. The motives were wrong. And that's what we do in idolatry. We use Satan's motives. We use the motives of our broken selves, not the motives of our new selves that are redeemed by the cross of Jesus Christ. So Jesus denied those good things that were offered to him in the wrong way with the wrong motives. And he said to Satan in Matthew chapter 4, you shall worship. He quotes Deuteronomy. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The son that Sarai eventually did have, Isaac was his name, would become the ancestor to another promised son, a son that was promised before history was recorded in the garden when Adam and Eve, for the first time in human history, broke God's law and made us all sinners and lawbreakers. Back eons of time before Isaac was born to Sarai and Abram, God promised a redeemer. God promised a savior. God promised a son, and humanity waited and waited and waited. Through time out of mind, humanity waited. And finally, the son came, the promised son, whose own death paid for Sarai's idolatry and Abram's idolatry, my idolatry, your idolatry. Because Jesus' greatest longing was to worship and serve his heavenly father. And when you let this Jesus steal your heart back from idols, he becomes your new desire. He becomes your first love. Most idolatry, people say, is love misdirected. And when Jesus becomes your first love, as his heavenly father was his first love, you have something to long for and desire that is greater than the idol, that is more powerful than the good thing you want in the wrong way at the wrong time. When you let this Jesus steal your heart back from idolatry, then his love will define you. His truth will redefine you. No longer the things that you long for. They will lose their power because of Jesus on his throne in your life. The idols cannot bear to be in the presence of Jesus if he is ruling your heart. That's why two weeks ago we started with, if you're in a conflict, remember, we exist to glorify God. If God is on his throne, if Jesus consumes our heart, the idols have to flee. They lose their power. They still exist. Oh, they still exist. This is why the New Testament tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because life is a journey and we have to keep walking with Jesus or the idols creep back in like weaves, weeds in August. So in a sense, you know, as a Christian, my, I've been following Christ for like almost, like 45 years. No, 40 years. See, I'm getting old, I can't do math anymore. I've been following Jesus for about 40 years. 
And I will tell you that a big part of following Jesus is, is learning how to embrace his love for me so that the idols lose their power. And there are idols that he killed long and long, long time ago. There are new idols every year. There are new idols every season of my life that I have to ask him to destroy. And, and it's like, I, the way you do that is he has to be greater than the idol. Your longing for him has to outmatch your longing for having a kid or getting a new job or getting married or getting that, that role or being seen in a certain way or being right or making sure that they say they're sorry. Even those good things should never be the ultimate thing. So let God's love for you deliver you from the idols that rule over you. And if you're thinking to yourself, man, you know, I really didn't get any practical advice on resolving conflicts today or navigating that tense divisive climate in our culture. Yes, you did. Ask God to uncover the idols of your heart. And next week, we're going to look at repentance and what it means to repent. Let's pray. Our, our Father God, we, we just pause and confess our idolatry to you. We confess that we are worshipers of false gods. We have recreated the things that you have made. We have taken them and forged them and willed them into great, powerful idols that rule us and control us and dictate our decisions and what we say and where we go and how we view ourselves and how we tell our stories. Father, forgive us. Thank you that there is someone greater than all of our idols who longs to be loved, who longs to be worshipped by us, and we know that it is good to love Jesus, that it is good to worship him, our Savior and our God. And I ask for my friends today and for myself that the love of Christ that cannot separate us from you would be greater to us than the love of all of these things that we seem to desperately want. In his name, amen.